Welcome to the Soul Salons, exploring our spiritual heritage. In each season of the series, I try to feature at least one episode on a great philosopher or philosophical work, usually focused on a divine element. A professor I know suggested that I examine a work called The Consolation of Philosophy by a Roman statesman named Bothius. Bothius was not terribly well known until he compiled this text, which he did while he was in prison some 1,500 years ago. Even though many people have probably never heard of Bothius, the book itself became very popular. You could say, perhaps, that it was a bestseller in the Middle Ages. It was read and studied by statesmen, philosophers, poets, and historians. So what's it about? In summary, The Consolation of Philosophy recounts a conversation that Bothius has with philosophy, with a capital P, who is personified as a woman. This imaginary figure visits him in prison as he awaits his execution for the alleged crime of treason. Bothius starts out bemoaning his fall from grace, as it were, from a high position that he once held in Rome. Although he claims to have been a good and honest man, Bothius had lost his job, status, wealth, friends, and the comfort of his family in a fairly short space of time. He starts the book by recounting all of these woes and injustices and all the backstabbing politics. In that sense, perhaps times have not really changed. Anyway, the imaginary maiden who visits him in prison basically tells him to stop whining because all of these things are ultimately transitory and subject to the whims of fortune. She claims that Bothius is upset only because he has forgotten his true nature. Did I not say truly that something is missing? whereby as through a breach in the ramparts, disease hath crept in to disturb thy mind? She asks him. She tries to console him somewhat by talking about the true good and God's guiding hand in the world. They then have a conversation about topics like happiness, free will, and the problems of evil. What was interesting to me about this work was that it alternates between a conversation and poetry. There are almost 40 poems in this text. I'll read you part of one from early in in the work that talks about the transience of life that I just mentioned. Smooth and tranquil lies the deep, while the winds are hushed in sleep. Soon when angry tempests lash, wild and high the billows dash. Thus if nature's changing face holds not still a moment's space, fleeting deem man's fortunes, deem bliss as transient as a dream, One law only only standeth fast, things created may not last. In the first part of the text, the Lady Philosophy seems pretty harsh with Bothius, actually. A cruder way to say this, perhaps, is that she tells Bothius to suck it up and be grateful for all the good things he did have in life. She tells Bothius that few are ultimately happy with the circumstances of their lives. She uses examples of someone who may have wealth but remains unmarried, and someone who is married but doesn't have children, and someone who has children but has lots of problems with them. And the more fortunate a person is, she implies, the less likely he or she is able to deal with adversity. Philosophy comments on how it is better to be visited by bad fortune than good fortune. Good fortune draws men far from the true good, she says, but ill fortune oft-times draws men back to true good with grappling irons. I don't think any of us would really care to be handled with grappling irons. That basically means a big iron hook. 
Now, I suppose we all know that we're better and improved by suffering, but does anybody really desire it? Usually, at this point in the episode, I'll say a bit about the background of the person that I am featuring. But, you know what, there isn't a heck of a whole lot to say about Bothius. He was very learned and held a prominent public position under King Theodoric the Great, who later had him executed for treason, at the age of only around 44 years old, apparently. That was the year 524 AD. It was unclear whether he was clubbed to death or hanged or impaled with a sword, but in any case, one gets the idea that his death was pretty gruesome. During his relatively short lifetime, and besides having a public position, Bothius translated the works of great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. He wrote other books and manuals on music, geometry, astronomy, and arithmetic. It amazes me how multidisciplinary some of these early thinkers were. Today, we seem to live in singular silos. I feel like despite our amazing internet access, we have put ourselves into increasingly smaller boxes. Most scholars would agree that Bothius was grounded in a Christian tradition, and he also wrote treatises supporting Catholicism. While the consolation of philosophy didn't address Christianity per se, it definitely mentions God throughout the text. When philosophy asks him if the operation of the world is haphazard, he answers, I know that God the Creator presideth over his work, nor will the day ever come that shall drive me from holding fast the truth of this belief. A good portion of the text talks about God's goodness and governance of the world, but I'll get to that in a minute. After Bothius's female guide beats him over the head a bit for his complaining, she becomes a little kinder and more instructive. She comments on how people keep seeking happiness from without versus within, desiring money or land or servants, for example. Why do we seek from without the happiness that is within, she asks. If then thou art master of thyself, thou wilt possess that which thou wilt never be willing to lose, and which fortune cannot take from thee. So what is self-mastery, actually? To the ancient Greek philosophers, it would have included self-knowledge, inner contentment, and self-control. Philosophy implies that good is implanted within us and that we are godlike, and yet we still aim for the lowest of things. Rising to our higher nature is a theme of one poem that I liked. Who fain would sow the fallow field and see the growing corn, must first remove the useless weeds, the brambles, and the thorn. After ill savor, honey's taste is to the mouth more sweet. After the storm, the twinkling stars, the eyes more cheerily greet. When night hath passed, the bright dawn comes in car of rosy hue. So drive the false bliss from thy mind, and thou shalt see the true. Philosophy goes on to explain how most mortals desire happiness, but look for it in wealth, rank, glory, power, or pleasure. She adds, however, that all of these things don't necessarily give what they promise. Wealth, for example, can be taken away. People who have power are always afraid of losing it. Fame and recognition are temporary. She concludes that the dwelling place of happiness is in God, who is the perfect good, and that things become good by acquiring unity. That's an interesting concept that she presents here. She says, for example, that things subsist and live when they are gathered together and perish when they come apart in pieces. She links this too with God's governance of the universe. This world could never have taken shape as a single system out of parts so diverse and opposite were it not that there is one who joins together these so diverse things, she says. 
About halfway through the text, there's a lengthy discussion about good and evil. Bothius questions why virtue is often trampled under the feet of the wicked, and why evil often goes unpunished, or at least that's how he sees it. Philosophy has a different take on this, of course. She explains how those who do evil things ultimately suffer their own hell, in a sense. I think a variety of religious traditions have this sort of reward and punishment framework that comes from some judgmental god up in the sky. But I'm not sure it really works like that. Our narrator in The Consolation of Philosophy frames this idea a bit differently, too. Hast thou fashioned thy soul to the likeness of the better, thou hast no need of a judge to award the prize. By thine own act thou hast raised thyself in the scale of excellence. Hast thou perverted thy affections to baser things, look not for punishment from one without thee. Thine own act hath degraded thee and thrust thee down. Aren't we all often our own worst enemy? I know for myself I'm constantly kind of beating myself over the head. I suppose there's some ideal balance between thinking we're terrible versus thinking we're great, but I still struggle to find that balance myself. Philosophy makes an interesting argument that God knows what each of us needs. He looks forth from the lofty watchtower of his providence, perceives what is suited to each, and assigns what he knows to be suitable, she says. Adversity, for example, might make some people better, but would make others worse because they don't have the endurance for it. Others might face a lot of afflictions to help them develop their virtues or patience. Prosperity might be good for some and bad for others, depending on how they use it and in terms of spiritual development. Trial, reward, amendment, or punishment all have their purpose, she claims. She makes a statement about this whole setup that gave me some personal comfort. She said, So shouldst thou see anything in this world happening differently from thy expectation, Doubt not, but events are rightly ordered. It is in thy judgment that there is perverse confusion. Certainly, I am confused about the way things happen in the world. I can only understand this when I consider that we, as very fallible human beings living in a particular plane of consciousness, may not always see the big picture. The last part of the consolation of philosophy is about man's free will. Bothius makes an argument that if God has a foreknowledge of all things, then humanity doesn't really have free will. If that's the case, then what a person does or doesn't do would make no difference. Philosophy tries to explain that just because God may know what is going to happen, it is not necessarily the cause of future events. I have to say that I always get kind of lost over philosophical discussions about fate and predestination. The arguments always seem to go around in circles for me. But there was a poem in the text that explained this whole idea in a way that I really liked. The poem talks about the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which starts in the mountains of eastern Turkey. The rivers split into two large systems that wind their way through Syria and Iraq and eventually empty into the Persian Gulf. So here's part of this poem. There the Tigris and Euphrates at one source their waters blend, soon to draw apart and plainward, each its separate way to wend. When once more their waters mingle in a channel deep and wide, all the flotsam comes together that is borne upon the tide. Ships and trunks of trees uprooted in the torrent's wild career meet as mid the swirling waters, chance their random way may steer. Yet the shelving of the channel and the flowing water's force 
guides each movement and determines every floating fragment's course. Thus, where the drift of hazard seems most unrestrained to flow, chance herself is reined and bitted, and the curb of law doth know. Flotsam, by the way, means the wreckage of a ship that is washed up by the sea. I expect that many of us can relate these days to feeling like flotsam, or perhaps shipwrecked. But one useful piece of advice that I picked up from reading The Consolation of Philosophy was to trust a process that is for our ultimate good. Chance is ultimately restrained and the river flows back to its source.